All right, so I, I played soccer in college. I played four years, and I loved almost every bit of it. I loved the games. I actually love our practices. Last time I was talking to a couple of my teammates, that was the one thing I told them is I think more than anything, I miss our practices. They were hard, they were hard work, but we absolutely loved our practices. One of the things that I hated more than anything else was watching game film. Uh, if you know me, you know that I don't sit still very well. Uh, I need to be moving around. You can ask my wife because my office is at home and I'm constantly pacing or moving around my office and sitting in weird spots. I just, I struggle to sit still. And so for game film, we would sit in a dark room and a soccer game is 90 minutes, but every two seconds, the coach has to stop to comment on what's going on so that we can learn from our mistakes or learn from the opponents. There's two kinds of game film. There's, there's a kind where you watch your own performance, you critique it so that you can do better in the future. The other kind is to watch the game film of an opponent. And you watch their game film to prepare you to face that opponent in a game. And as you watched that opponent, you would learn their, their patterns of play. You'd learn their strengths and weaknesses. Who are the players that they rely on? Who are the, the weaker players that we can try to exploit? You'd learn their tactics, and you'd learn all of these things. And by the time that game came, you were more equipped to face them. Simple enough. That makes sense. Daniel chapter 8, in my opinion, is the enemy's game film. It shows us the tactics of the enemy, and it prepares us to endure it when those tactics are turned against us. So chapter 7 jumped us all the way to the end of the story, to show us that for God's people, things will turn out okay. Jesus will deliver us into his kingdom. Daniel 8 then prepares us for what we might face on the way to the end of the story. So we're going to work through this text in a very similar way to last week. We'll walk through and explain the vision and the imagery, what it all refers to. And then in the end, we'll discuss why this chapter matters to us today. Along the way, though, there might be a little bit more history than I normally do. I'm not going to try and bore you, but the history in this chapter, it's not just filler. It is very important because I want you guys to be just as amazed by this chapter as I am. So I'm really excited. Let's jump in. Daniel chapter 8, we'll begin with the first eight verses. You can follow along on the screen behind me or you can read along in your Bibles. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. 
but he cast him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Daniel receives this vision uh, about three years after the vision he had in chapter 7. So we're in 550-ish B.C., and Daniel's probably somewhere in his 70s at this point. And in this vision, Daniel finds himself in Susa, the citadel, standing on the Uli Canal. So at this point, Daniel is living uh, in the empire of Babylon. King Belshazzar, king of Babylon, is still the king. Babylon is still standing. But in this vision, he's not in Babylon. In this vision, he's transported to Persia. Susa was about 220 miles east of Babylon, and that would eventually become one of the prominent cities of the Persian Empire. So Daniel is in the heart of Persian territory, enemy territory, and he's standing on the bank of this giant canal. It was about 900 feet wide at that point. And Daniel looks up and he sees this ram standing there with him right on the edge of the water. And this ram had two horns like you would expect from any other ram. But one of these horns was placed a little bit higher up on the head. So it kind of looked weird. He had one here, one a little bit higher. And the one placed higher was also a little bit longer than the other. Does that description sound familiar at all from last week? I hope it does. If you paid close attention last week, then this should ring a bell. In chapter 7, there was a bear. That bear was described as having one side raised up higher than the other. The horn on one side of this ram's head is raised up higher than the other. We said in chapter 7 that the bear represented the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And the ram in chapter 8 represents the very same kingdom. So the ram is the Medo-Persian empire. And the details given by Daniel here, they make this very clear for us. So this ram starts on the bank of the Uli Canal, which is east of Babylon, in the heart of Persia. And the next thing we see is he's charging in every direction. He's going west, he's going north, he's going south. He is going all over the place. What this is describing is the expansion of the Medo-Persian Empire, their conquest, their campaign to overthrow Babylon. And as the Medes and the Persians, they make their campaign, other beasts, other kingdoms, try to stand in their way. But none of them could do it. None of them could stop this charging ram. And anyone who tried to oppose it, they found themselves trampled and thrown to the ground. They found that they had no allies, no powers that could come to their aid and save them. This ram, the Medo-Persian Empire, did whatever it pleased, and it became great. The vision of this ram, it's showing us both the rise and the fall of Persia. And these two verses, verses 3 to 4, we're covering hundreds of years of human history. So we're not seeing everything. We're getting a little bit of a snapshot here of what was going on in this period. The Medes and the Persians, they arose in 539 when they finally conquered Babylon. And then they did as they pleased. They, their empire grew and grew. They were successful. It expanded. It became this great and majestic empire. And for 300 years, nobody could contest. Nobody could come against them. They snuffed out any type of opposition. But in 334 BC, the Medo-Persian Empire buckled and it collapsed just as Babylon had before it. As Daniel's considering this ram, another animal arrives on the scene, and this time it's a goat. The ram came from Persia in the east, 
But this goat comes from the opposite direction. It comes from all the way in the west. Daniel sees this goat blazing across the earth from the west. And it does so without even touching the ground. So last week we had a leopard that had four wings. This week we have a flying goat. The takeaway is that Daniel needs to stop eating weird things before he sleeps. Now you might be wondering, why are we talking about flying animals on a Sunday afternoon at church? Again, but all of this imagery, it's important. It represents the historical trajectory of these nations. And these visions, they reinforce that God truly is sovereign over the nations. God is telling Daniel, here is what's going to happen with Persia. Here is what's going to happen with Greece. And just as the description of the ram overlapped with chapter 7, the description of the goat also overlapped with chapter 7. The flying leopard of chapter 7 was the kingdom of Greece. The flying goat of chapter 8 is also the kingdom of Greece. The conspicuous horn there is uh, Alexander the Great, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But with both the leopard's wings and the flying goat, the point here is about speed. The other day, I was, uh, I was talking to Lauren, and I was really, really irritated as I was driving. Um, and so I was complaining about my favorite thing to complain about, other drivers. And this was justified, though. This, this driver was, was being completely irresponsible. He was driving 100 easy, and nobody else was going anywhere near that. I mean, he was going to kill somebody. Um, So this was a little bit ridiculous. But when I complained to Lauren, I told her that this guy flew past me, that he flew past me. He was doing 100 miles an hour, right? The image here is speed. We use that term, oh, when they're really fast, oh, they are flying. And that's what's being described here. The goat is flying across the earth from the west at unbelievable speeds. Greece conquered Persia at a pace that no one would have thought possible. They did it in just over 10 years, the entire known world, and they were led by Alexander the Great. He was their first king. He is the conspicuous horn on the goat's head. When this goat made its way across the earth, it came to the ram, he charges at the ram, and he was enraged against the ram. And if you know the history of Persia and Greece, you know that they hated each other. They were bitter enemies. So this was not business. This was personal. Alexander wanted to absolutely trash the Persian Empire. And that's what he did. He led his forces against them. They lashed out in anger and they struck the ram and shattered its horns. The ram was struck down, trampled, and left in the dust. 300 years of human achievement, of human greatness, crumbles to nothing. In the wake of Persia's fall, Greece continued to grow to solidify their their control over former Persian territory. And again, it took just 10 years for Alexander to do this. But when he was at his peak, which should have been the prime years of his life, he died. And the text told us he would. The text said that when he was strong, this mighty horn would be broken and shattered. And Alexander the Great, we know, died of a severe fever. His conquest, his world takeover was Very impressive. I couldn't do it. But in the end, he was no different. No better off than anyone else. He did not descend from the gods like he told his soldiers. He was simply human. And once he died, his kingdom was split into four smaller kingdoms that were led by his four generals. 
And we're going to come back to that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But all of this ought to serve as a reminder to us, a reminder of where human achievement leads us. The greatest kings of Persia, they enjoyed more success than almost anybody. Their kingdom was much larger than Babylon's. Alexander the Great held the world in his fingertips, accomplished more than probably anybody else by his age, maybe even since his lifetime. I don't know. But in the end, what did it offer them? They were no better off than anyone else. Their names might be remembered, some of them, but what good does that do any of them now? The pursuits that they invested their lives into brought no return. And upon their death, they were made equal with even the lowliest slave in their kingdom. If I told all of you that I had a brilliant new business idea, and I told you, you know, I need some startup capital. I need some investments here. I'm looking for $50,000. I need to get this going, and we are going to make bank. If you have any shred of intelligence, you're going to have some questions for me. You're going to want some guarantees so that, so that you know this is not going to be a wasted investment. And if I can't satisfactorily answer your questions and give you some type of assurance that there's at least a good chance that there will be a return on that investment, then you would be extremely foolish to invest that money in my new business idea. I haven't come up with that idea, but I'll let you know when I do. <laughs> Almost every ruler throughout history they invested their life into building a kingdom of their own. They invested their life into things that brought temporary glory and pleasure, but it didn't actually give them a return on their investment. Because when push came to shove, it didn't leave them any better off than any other person. Church, when we invest our lives solely into worldly gain, whether that be relationships, sexual pleasure, monetary gain, physical stuff, social standing, prestige in the workplace, whatever kind of pride and vanity you want to set in that category, you will find no return on that investment. Those things will not extend your life by a single second. And the moment this life ends, those things are gone. They are not worthy of your time and investment. And Jesus told us in the Gospels, don't store up treasure here on earth. Store it up in heaven because that is where treasure will last. When your life ends, that treasure will remain. So let your life be hidden in Christ. Invest your life in Jesus. That doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the good things that God has blessed us with, but it means that we pursue the giver of those gifts more than we do the gifts themselves. Invest your life in Christ's kingdom, not in your own. Make the investment of pursuing Jesus, of walking faithfully before him. Because if that's your investment, man, you will receive a glorious return. Those who seek to preserve their life will lose it. But those who seek to lose their life for the glory of Jesus, man, you will find true joy and satisfaction and you will find eternal life. Alexander the Great's death, as I said, gave birth to four kingdoms. And we're going to see more of those kingdoms, especially in chapter 11. But for now, this vision focuses in on a single kingdom, one of these four divisions. 
and more specifically on a single king from one of those four divisions. There was a wicked king, future to Daniel, past to us, that was coming, and he would seek to utterly destroy and eradicate God's people. And that king is the focus, really, of the vision as a whole. So look back at verse 9 with me. We're going to read verses 9 through 14 about this, this coming king. It says, out of one of them, one of them being those four divisions of Alexander's empire, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So I need to clarify here, right from the beginning, chapter 7, we had a little horn. Here in chapter 8, we have another little horn. These are not the same little horn. I know it's confusing. They're two different people being given the same description. Uh, and, and we're going to see here, there's a lot of overlap between these two individuals. The little horn of chapter 7, little horn of chapter 8, but they are two different people. The little horn of chapter 7 was the Antichrist. That's what we talked about last week. Chapter 8, the little horn is a king named Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. And Antiochus, he was the king of the Seleucid kingdom. That was one of the four that broke off from Alexander's kingdom. He was not the rightful heir to this kingdom. It was actually his nephew was. But through manipulation, bribery, flattery, he positioned himself as king. And under his rule, the Seleucids grew. Their kingdom expanded. And he made advances south into Egypt, east toward what was formerly Persia, and then also into the land that God had given his people, Israel. And that's what's referred to as the glorious land here. As Antiochus's power grew, so did his ego, and so did his desire to eradicate the Jewish people. Babylon and Persia, they were pretty lenient when it came to uh, the people they conquered. They, they generally let them keep their old religion. They didn't force them to assimilate in to that extent. But Antiochus had no leniency whatsoever. He demanded absolute loyalty to himself and to the gods he worshipped. The host of the, the host and the stars here that were thrown down and trampled, that's the Jewish people. Those who refused to cower and bend to the king, who said, no, I will worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And the host and the stars, they were tortured and executed by this man Antiochus. Antiochus began his vicious attacks on the Jewish people in the fall of 170 BC. And he kicked off that persecution when he had the Jewish high priest, a man named Onias, he had him assassinated so that he could put his own man in that role of high priest, a man who was sympathetic to the king and who would facilitate the worship of the Greek gods, particularly the god Zeus. Now the book of 2 Maccabees tells us 
that, uh, that Antiochus, through this period, slaughtered 80,000 Jewish men, women, boys, girls, and infants. This man was a bloodthirsty tyrant. And in another passage in 2 Maccabees, it tells us the story of a mother and her seven sons who were brought before Antiochus. And they were given a choice. You can worship Zeus, sacrifice to him, or you can be tortured and killed. And one by one, he didn't do this all together. He did it one by one. So the others had to watch. He offered them a chance to forsake God and worship Zeus. And when they refused, their tongues were cut out, their arms and legs were broken and maimed, and then they were cooked alive. And this mother watched all seven of her sons endure this torture, this execution, and none of them broke. All of them remained faithful and said, I will not forsake Yahweh. He is the only God we will worship. And then the mother too was tortured and killed for her faith as well. The book of Maccabees is not a divinely inspired book. It's not the word of God, but it provides helpful historical context for us. Maccabees also records that copies of God's word were burned, and those who were found to have them, they were killed. And in killing God's people and forsaking God's command, this king threw truth to the ground, trampled over. His goal was to rid the world of the truth of God's law and word. He wanted the truth of God cast off so he could determine what was true so he could do as he pleased, so that he could elevate himself over and above everybody else. Our society today seems to be attempting very much the same thing. Rejecting truth, claiming that we are the authors of truth. We decide what is right and what is correct. And any truth that doesn't suit our own desire, well, that's not really truth. And it's cast to the ground. Antiochus was a monster. But his reign of terror would not last forever. Verse 13, we see two angels speaking. And they're asking, how long? How long will this period of persecution under this wicked tyrant last? And the angel says this period will continue for 2,300 evenings and mornings. So 2,300 days. That 2,300 days... And then the, the temple would be restored to its rightful state, reconsecrated to the Lord. 2,300 days is roughly six years and four months. So this period of persecution ended when the Jewish people revolted against Antiochus. They took back the temple and reconsecrated it for the Lord. That happened in December of 164. So in order for this vision, this prophecy to be correct, this persecution had to have started in the fall of 170 B.C. Do you remember what I told you happened in the fall of 170 B.C.? Antiochus kicked off his persecution of the Jews by having the high priest assassinated. He, be he began his attacks and persecution of the Jews on the fall of 170, and it ended when the, when the temple was taken in December of 164, six years and four months later. This is crazy. Daniel's writing this prophecy sometime at the latest in the 530s. And Daniel prophesied the exact actions of a specific king from a specific nation that would branch off from a larger kingdom. And he's doing this 400 years in advance. And he's doing it down to the very day, into the very month that it would take place. That's nuts. And this prophecy in Daniel is only going to get more and more specific. 
And you can search the holy books of any other religion. Check the Quran, check the scriptures of the Hindus and the Buddhists. You will not find anything like this because this is the word of God. Go dig through them. You will not find prophecy like this. This is inspired by the ancient of days, the one who holds all of history and time in his hand. The main portion of the vision has ended. And just as he did in chapter 7, Daniel's like, hey, what are all these animals for? And so he's looking for an explanation, and God graciously provides that through the angel Gabriel. Let's look back to the final section here. Daniel 8, verses 15 through 27. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make the deceit prosper under his hand, and his own mind shall become, he, in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel, again, standing on the canal, hears a voice coming from up above it. Presumably that is God's voice. And this voice tells Gabriel to explain the vision to Daniel. And he tells Daniel this vision is for the time of the end. The end being spoken here is not the, the end of human history. This is not the end as in Christ's return. This is speaking of the period of the Persians and the Greeks. And verse 19 clarifies that for us. Now, all of this vision apparently was a little bit too much for Daniel because he appears to pass out after, uh, after Gabriel speaks to him. But Gabriel strengthens him so he can stand, and he explains to Daniel what he just witnessed. And he says, this is going to take place, the latter end of the indignation. And as I said, the time of indignation refers to the, the, the reigns of Persia and Greece. God enabled Babylon to rule, to dominate the Jewish people, but he also promised that when the time came, they would face judgment for each of their sins and all of their wickedness. The same is true for Persia and Greece. Their wickedness will not go overlooked. God was showing Daniel how Persia and how Greece were going to fall. 
But more importantly than that, he's showing them where is Israel? Where is God's people in the midst of all of that chaos and that turmoil? Verses 20 to 22, they, they state explicitly what I shared at the beginning, those identifications of Greece and Persia and Alexander the Great. I wasn't pulling those out of nowhere. It tells us right here that the, the ram and its horns were Medo-Persia and its kings, and the goat was the kingdom of Greece and its first king, Alexander the Great. Then, as we said earlier, when Alexander died, his kingdom divided into four parts, each part ruled by a different general. Seleucus ruled over Syria and Mesopotamia. Cassander moved, ruled over Macedon and Greece. Lysimachus ruled over Asia Minor. And a man named Ptolemy ruled in Egypt. But none of them ever reached the heights of Alexander. I want to say something to you here. I'm not bending historical data here. I'm not bending this to fit the mold of Daniel 8. The historical data that I'm giving you, this is recognized universally. This stuff did indeed happen. And this is why I made a big deal in the first week about who wrote Daniel and when Daniel was written. Because the people that claimed the book of Daniel was written in the 160s BC by an anonymous Jewish person, their rationale is that Daniel's predictions are simply too accurate. Nobody could have written the book of Daniel before these things happened because all of those things then actually happened. And so they're saying that somebody living well after these events documented them, but did it in such a way to make it seem as if they were prophecies. And we're not going to spend too much time on the author or anything. We've done that already. But every evidence we have confirms that this book was written in the 530s by Daniel. This book, these prophecies, they are not the result of trickery. And all of this can be fact-checked. You can go and Google this stuff. You will find this on Google, this history of Persia and Greece. This book is a result of God revealing history, revealing the future to his servant and recording it through him. When we get to verses 23 and 26, we return to the little horn. There's a little bit more detail here, but this little horn says, will arise when the transgressors have reached their limit. So in other words, when the kingdoms of Persia and Greece have, have sinned to the fullest extent and when God's judgment is near, that's when this king is going to arise, this Antiochus IV. And he's described as a king of bold face, one who understands riddles. To be of bold face is to be stern or strong or fierce. It's describing his harsh, his cruel disposition toward God's people. This man would be unreasonably cruel and bloodthirsty. And we know from history that he was. Then he also understands riddles. And this speaks about his, his ability to solve difficult problems. And I think contextually what this is saying is that he will be politically savvy, a master of, of political intrigue. He will be able to outmaneuver and outthink all of his political opponents. And he will accomplish his goals. And like the little horn of chapter 7, this one started out small, but he quickly grew and grew. He grew strong and great, but there's a little comment in there, not based on his own power. Like the Antichrist, this wicked king Antiochus would be empowered by Satan so that he could oppose and put down God's people with greater efficiency. And he succeeded for a short time in bringing destruction against those Jews and against anyone else who would oppose him. The description in verse 25 is a little bit more difficult uh, when we look uh, from a Hebrew standpoint. It could mean that his sinful wisdom would allow for more and more deceit to arise in his kingdom, or it could mean that his great wisdom 
causes his deceptive goals to be accomplished. I lean towards that second one uh, because that is the because that's the emphasis of the text here that he is succeeding in this period. But inevitably, like most rulers, his successes go to his head, and like all of the prideful people that you know, usually their ego doesn't actually align with reality. And it says in his own mind he will become great. And translated literally, that reads, he magnified himself in his own heart. This man's arrogance knew no bounds. This is, is the poster child of human arrogance. And he sought even to rise up against the prince of princes, against Yahweh himself. This is another thing we can verify through history. Antiochus IV was known by another title. His other title was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he gave this title to himself. He even had it engraved on his coins. His coins said, Theos Epiphanes, God manifest. That's what he thought about himself. He told his people, I am the manifestation of God on earth. I'm as close to God as you are going to get. He may not have been the Antichrist, but he certainly was an Antichrist. But again, his ego does not align with reality. And he thought to challenge the ancient of days, but he was broken by no human hand. And you know what's interesting? History verifies this for us yet again. Antiochus did not die in battle. He did not die from somebody stabbing him in the back to take his throne. Historians tell us, multiple historians tell us, that he died of grief and remorse when his troops were routed by the Jewish rebels. Like every king who thought he could rival the true sovereign, Antiochus' reign came to a swift end. And Daniel is told to seal up the vision because it is for many days from now. It was far in the future from Daniel. If you're reading from the NASB, it probably says something like, Daniel was told to keep this vision secret. But I think that misses the point. Sealing up the vision was done to protect and preserve, not to hide it away from people. And so Daniel's not keeping a secret here. He's preserving it so that those future Jews, 350 years down the road, that they would be able to read this and take heart and be encouraged that even this persecution was a part of God's sovereign plan. And the content of what Daniel just saw in this vision leaves him sick and bedridden because he just saw all of these people being murdered and executed. He saw this wicked king triumphing over God's people. And he understood the angel's interpretation, but there were still things he didn't quite fully grasp. I said at the beginning, Daniel's getting a snapshot of human history. He's not getting a detailed textbook on everything that happened. He's getting a bird's eye view of a very, very large period condensed into a very, very small vision. And so he doesn't know when exactly this is going to take place. He just knows it's coming. He doesn't know precisely who this little horn is going to be. But knowing that it was coming at all was extremely overwhelming to him. He eventually recovered, continued about his business for the king. It's quite obvious why this passage is important to the Jewish people. And actually, chapter 8 is when we switch back to the Hebrew language. 2 through 7 was in Aramaic. Now we're back to Hebrew. And that's because this is so vital and important for God's people. It warned them, hey, this is coming. You may not be under Babylonian exile for the next 300 years, but you will face some pretty harsh stuff. But what about us? 
Christians living in 2023, what does this prophecy about a long dead king matter at all for us? To answer this question, it's helpful to consider the parallels between the little horn of chapter seven and the little horn of chapter eight. Right, go to the next slide. There should be, yeah, there's a chart up here for you. Hopefully you guys can read that. If you can't read it, uh, I, can, I can email it to, to you if you would like. And these are just the comparisons from Daniel 7 to Daniel 8. If we went outside of Daniel, there'd be a lot more overlap between these two figures as well. But both of them are symbolized by a little horn. The Antichrist in chapter 7 appeared greater or more imposing. The Antiochus was a king of bold face, of, of cruelty and strength. Uh, the Antichrist had the eyes of a man, great wisdom. Antiochus was cunning. He's a solver of riddles. They both persecuted believers for a brief period of time. They both blasphemed God. Both of them were incredibly arrogant. Both of them are killed by no human hand. And both of them sought to change the times and the law. The Antichrist, it says, will change the times and the law. He will outlaw the worship of Yahweh, worship of Jesus. And then Antiochus did exactly that. He took away the sacrifices. He would not allow the Jewish people to worship their God. Antiochus is a foretaste of the Antichrist to come. Both are called, like I said, all of these little horns, all of these, these, these descriptions, they match so well. When you get to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, Jesus even quotes what Daniel says about Antiochus and some of the things that he did, and then he applies it to the future actions of the Antichrist. The little horns of chapter 7 and chapter 8, two different rulers, but one of them prefigures, looks forward to the other. We say this a lot when we talk about King David and Jesus. We say that King David was a foretaste of the greater King Jesus. Jesus is the Davidic king. In the same way, Antiochus is a foretaste of a far worse king to come. Church, there will never be a shortage of rulers, of little horns who rise up to stifle and persecute God's people. There have been many little horns throughout history, and they will continue until history is complete. Daniel 8 is not only a warning to the Jewish people, but to all of God's people, that until Christ returns, there will be wicked men who seek to elevate themselves, who seek to oppose God and destroy and bring ruin to his people. Because Satan is real, and he is at work in this world. And one day he'll make that final attempt using the Antichrist to overthrow God. He'll be crushed in a single word from the Lord. But God has warned us that at times, he will be allowed to persecute God's people. And I would say that this warning equips us. If our government knew of an impending natural disaster, or maybe an, a, a foreign attack coming on American soil... The best way for them to equip the nation for that disaster is let them know that it's coming. Knowing that that disaster is coming makes all the difference. You could stock up on water, food, make sure your phone is charged. If you need to evacuate, you can do that. On the other hand, if the government decided, you know, you guys will figure it out eventually, it wouldn't be very good. They would fail to warn us without knowledge of that disaster, how much more devastating would that be for those who never saw it coming? Daniel 8 warns us that we will face persecution. We will face hardship as we await the coming of King Jesus. But in warning us, in giving us this knowledge, he's also equipped us to endure that persecution and hardship. 
And that's the big idea of Daniel 8. We have been equipped to endure until Christ returns. God has shown us the game film, showed us the tactics of the enemy so that we are not caught off guard when the enemy attacks. That's how Batman always wins. He knows what they're going to do. He studies them. He knows their behavior. And he's ready for whatever they can throw at him because he sees it coming. And he can beat even Superman. He's like, Superman shows up. He's like, great, I got kryptonite, bro. What are you going to do now? Batman always wins because he's prepared. He has that, that forewarning. And by warning us of what is to come, he's equipped us to face it with confidence, to face it with resolve. God didn't just say, here's the end of the story, good luck along the way, but you'll be good in the end. He did tell us that. But he also didn't want us to be surprised about everything along the way. So he told us exactly what to expect so that we would not cower and fear that maybe God has lost control here. That persecution may harm us, probably will. But we can take heart, we can endure with obedience because it is temporary. Antiochus got six years and four months. You'll see later, the Antichrist will get seven years. Even our persecutors, even the little horns, like Antiochus, like the Antichrist, they are under the sovereign rule of the king of heaven. God told Daniel almost 400 years in advance what Antiochus would do, and he did exactly that. Nothing Antiochus IV did surprised God. None of that came about other than what God allowed to come about. At no point did his actions veer outside of God's control. Brothers and sisters, how comforting is it to know that in the worst moments of our life, in our darkest hour, we are firmly held in the hand of a good and loving and kind and gracious and merciful and holy God. The ancient of days will never be surprised. And he told us exactly how Satan intends to work so that we would not be caught off guard either. We can endure faithfully and continue trusting in Jesus when persecution comes because we know that our fate is not in the hands of some little horn. Our fate is in the hands of Jesus. In John 10, in John 10 Jesus tells us each of his people are held in his hand. And there's no one, no power, no thing that can remove us from his hand. Antiochus could persecute. He could kill. He could cut out their tongues. He could maim them. He could cook them alive. He was powerless to remove those people from the hand of God. And the Antichrist will be exponentially worse, way more violent, will kill so many more people, but he is utterly powerless to separate us from our Savior. The same is true of any so-called little horn who seeks to oppress and harm God's people. God has promised to preserve us. And the promise of chapter 7 and the warning of chapter 8, they equip us to endure with faith and obedience no matter the circumstances. Because you and I, brothers and sisters, we are held in the hand of the true sovereign. And there's no king, no persecution, nothing that can remove us from his hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that, that each person in here would be 
in awe of your word at how specific these prophecies are. Lord, that it would give us an overwhelming assurance that you truly do hold all of time and history in your hand. And Father, we thank you that you have equipped us with this knowledge, with your Holy Spirit, to endure and walk in obedience and faithfulness until you return. And God, I pray as we go this week, we would not be swayed by a culture who seeks to throw truth to the ground, that we would not shy away from those who seek to, to mock or persecute for our faith. Lord, let us live with confidence, with supernatural boldness to share your gospel, to love people in the way that you have loved each of us. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for you. We ask that you would receive all of the praise and all of the glory from the service and the song that we are about to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.